Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Slate Money, the actionable idiolect episode of our weekly podcast guiding you through the important business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York, and this week we are going to enter into an arm's-length counterparty relationship with the subject of jargon, and financial jargon in particular, what it means and what it is doing to us. Then, living wills, talking of incomprehensible acronyms, we're going to be talking about the FDIC and the GAO and all manner of other weird Washington institutions. These things, these living wills, were supposed to be big banks' rather morbid-sounding solution to the too-big-to-fail problem, but regulators are sending them back to the drawing board, or perhaps the estate planning board. And then the battle over an actual estate, that of the artist Robert Rauschenberg. Should those trustees get paid millions of dollars, we will find out a judge has ruled... And at the end, as usual, we'll do our numbers lightning round. The ever-prepared Cathy O'Neill has a, a number. She's head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University, and therefore she always has a number in her back pocket. Cathy, what is your number? Felix, my number is one. I like that number. Jordan, what's your number? Nine. These are... Uh, these are good numbers, I have to say. My number is 100 million. We will get to those at the end. But first... Kathy, talk to us about jargon. Well, okay. So here's the thing. I could actually talk about this for hours because it's one of my favorite topics. When I left math, going into finance and then later into startup world, everything was jargon. This week, it's come up in various ways. There's a New Yorker article about jargon in finance. Um, there's also a University of Southern California business school paper about um, jargon in management. And just a little bit about the management, and then I'll let you guys talk about your favorite jargon um, terms. They figured out that as people speak management speak, other people don't understand them, but they do think that they're better leaders. That was kind of like the, the takeaway from that. And, you know, you see that all the time. And by the way, just bringing up last week's episode about McDonald's, part of the stuff that you're trained to do is the vocabulary to use when you're managing shift workers Vocabulary is very important. I mean, it's important in management, even though we love to laugh at it. It's important 
in McDonald's. It's important if you look at the leaked manuals for the Genius Bar at the Apple Store, the words you're allowed to use and the words you're not allowed to use. You'll never hear an Apple Genius use the word crash, for instance. <laughs> it's interesting. The New York article in particular is interesting because it, it was talking about sort of the social ills of financial well, let, let, Let's Let's give it a little plug here. This is by the great John Lanchester. It's uh, an excerpt from his upcoming book and with any luck we might even be able to get him on the show at some point when the book comes out. But Continue. And his basic point is that, you know, he makes a comparison between financiers and their just gigantic trove of acronyms for any kind of, you know, they have an, an entire dictionary of, of abbreviations and acronyms and whatnot and, and, and slang terms they use to um, the priests of ancient Egypt, essentially, who had these elaborate rituals that made people think that they could predict how the Nile would flood every year. And that gave them this immense authority. But in reality, they actually had these tools called Nilometers, which just kind of told them they, they could figure out scientific. Well, they could predict. They just, they just kept the prediction tools to themselves. They Ex- didn't share them with anyone else. Exactly. They kept them secret. These, these meters were actually in the temples where they only had access. So no one knew that these things existed except for the priesthood. And the, 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 the metaphor, of course, is that the banks are the new temples and that the jargon is this new way of keeping everyone in the real economy in the dark while the financial elite talks to each other in this language which no one else can understand. Exactly. This article really resonated with me, and I'm going to tell a, a kind of a short story from my newspaper intern days, from the summer of 2007, actually, when the credit crunch began. And we, it was before, like, everything was really melting down. It was sort of the early days when that phrase, credit crunch, was getting thrown around a lot. And you had journalists around the country struggling to figure out what was happening. And I remember seeing, you know, fairly experienced like real estate reporters. This is at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Um, so just a, a large metro paper sitting around trying to puzzle through these acronyms and what the heck was a CDS and what the heck was an MBS and what did all this mean? What did securitizing a mortgage actually mean? And trying to write a story. And for a few weeks, it was pretty clear no one really had any grasp of this. They could try to call experts. And these are smart, basically educated people. And this was sort of the state of a lot of the media for a while. Even people at national papers really had a hard time communicating what was going on. I remember, I remember this extremely well because this was more or less when I sort of made my bones as a financial blogger. I was at Portfolio.com at the time. And I'd been writing about debt markets and credit markets for a decade. And I knew this stuff. And I was kind of the only person for a while there who was translating it into some semblance of English. Eventually, other people sort of came along and did crash courses. But one of the things you learned um, over the course of the financial crisis was that the people who knew it already always had this incredible head start, which is why the best book about the financial crisis is by Nick Dunbar. Um, It's called The Devil's Derivatives. I can highly recommend it to everyone listening to this podcast. And the reason it's so good is because he was covering the story from long before the crisis and talking to the people in the trenches long before the crisis, rather than just getting their sort of ex post narratives of what happened. I just I just want to mention that, you know, having been in finance when all this stuff happened and seeing the jargon from from the, you know, the inside, there's really two different categories of jargon and there's two different reasons for them. The first one is you know, a kind of notation almost. Like it's a way of telescoping a lot of information into one term. And like mathematicians have been 
using and defining notation for years. So that makes sense. That makes sense for the insiders talking to each other. But why would you use that jargon to the outside world? And that the answer to that is typically because you want to sort of project power and this kind of mathematical objectivity. And you want to sort of basically intimidate people. So that's one kind of technical jargon. But then there's another kind of jargon, which also came out during the after the credit crisis, mostly about the way the people in finance talked to each other, the slang, like the word Muppet coming from Goldman Sachs, <laughs> yeah. right? So, and that had a different reason and it wasn't typically spread. That was leaked, right? That wasn't spread to the outside world, but that was used in some sense to make each other feel better about what they were doing. But I, I'm going to push back on what you're saying about the first type of jargon. Mm-hmm. As, as the, it's, it's like a way to keep people in the dark. And I think that's not true. I think, and I think actually John Lanchester makes this point in his article The point of his book is basically to make sure that people understand this jargon because he comes to the same conclusion that I've come to, which is that unless you can understand and use these words, you will not understand what is going on. That there is actually no way to express these concepts in plain English. God knows I've tried, but God knows I've also seen a million articles by Gillian Ted in the FT which spend... 800 words explaining what a synthetic credit default obligation is and then have 100 words to try and make her point because she's been explaining it too long. And I will mention, I will plug another plug right now, a great piece on Marketplace and in ProPublica by my former Reuters colleague Caesar Podkul about tobacco settlement bonds, something which we've touched on in this podcast in the past. It's a long 5,000-word piece. It's a very dense piece. And frankly... even I found it incredibly hard to follow what what exactly was his point. And one of the reasons it was hard to follow was be- precisely because his editors told him, we don't want any jargon in here. I get him on the phone yesterday, and I say, Caesar, can you explain this to me? And then in about one minute, where we just talk about callable and non-recourse and optionality and a few of these other things and perpetual suddenly it all makes sense you use these words which people don't really know what they mean and now i understand what he's talking about well, like, it's, it's a, both a, though okay. i mean it's right it's both like i mentioned there's there's telescoping which is really like using notation in the best possible way right? like i don't want to have to explain this in 400 words we both agree on a word to use for that so it as as it, you know one person who talks to another person who uh, who understands that notation, it is very, very useful. My question is, why do people who are putatively explaining something use jargon? And, and that happens is, too. And I think if you read Caesar's piece, you will understand why, because he's putatively explaining something, but honestly, it's so much. But sometimes it's used just literally to be powerful, sometimes. Part of what we're talking about is the role journalists play in this equation, because it's very easy to understand why uh, bankers use this talking amongst themselves. I mean, there's no reason for them to have to explain at length what these things are to each other. They know. They have the shorthands. They've come up with them. But if you're a journalist and you're supposed to be the translator, you're kind of writing for two groups. You're writing for a low information reader who might be sometimes, depending on your outlet, I run into this at Slate often. This is what happened in, 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 the, in the financial crisis is that financial journalists who used to be beat journalists writing for high information readers suddenly got turned to as, you know, explainers writing for low information readers. And it's a very different skill. And if you're a beat journalist, you use jargon. Yes. I, I am a educated, sophisticated kind of guy, but there's chunks of the New York Times which I do not understand. If I pick up the automobile section on a Sunday, there will be a whole bunch of stuff about cars, which I simply have no idea what it's talking about. Or, for that matter, if I pick up the sports section, there will be a whole bunch of talk about baseball jargon, which is way over my head. And that's okay. 
These things don't need to be explained to me every time. And you just need to make this point, though. I'm not talking about journalists. I'm talking about the people selling mortgage-backed securities to unsophisticated buyers. Mm-hmm. That That's an example. Or, right, you but know, the thing there was that the buyers didn't think of themselves as being unsophisticated. They thought they were sophisticated Norwegian bankers, and in fact, they were Muppets. Or maybe they were just <laughs> intimidated by fancy terms. Right. I think it was a combination. And it's true that... Um, a lot of the people who think they understand these terms, in fact, don't. I mean, that's a big part of it, too, is that you you say, OK, I understand what you know a synthetic CDO is. And it turns out you just have kind of a vague notion of what that means. And so it does create the it can create the illusion of understanding, which, as we've seen, is dangerous. And one of the main points of Caesar's piece uh, at ProPublica is exactly this, that the bank has sold this securitization product to states using lots of jargony terms about capital appreciation bonds and securitization and getting risk off their balance sheets of future tobacco settlement decreases and all of this kind of stuff. And the state technocrats thought that they understood it. And in fact, it turns out that they didn't. They didn't really understand where the risk was going. And this is true of finance in general, that people, you know, wind up selling products without really understanding where the risk would And I up. think I'm, I'm claiming that the jargon is created deliberately to do that, to get people to think they understand something. It, it, this, is, this is entirely possible. But we've had enough time on jargons. I think now we're going to use more jargons. <laughs> Jordan, tell us about Living Worlds. We're about to take a, a big gulp of alphabet soup. Now, we're going to try and uh, keep the acronyms to a minimum here. So, in Congress's attempts to end the problem of too big to fail during financial reform, one of the aspects they include in the Dodd-Frank Act was that banks, large, systemically important banks, would have to create a so-called living will, which basically said, in the case of a disaster, if you know you look like you're about to go bust, the government is going to have the ability to essentially wind you down outside of the normal bankruptcy process, and you need to have a step-by-step outline of how we can do that in the most orderly way possible so that the whole system isn't going to fall apart because you know Goldman took on too much risk or whatnot. And so this is one of the key aspects that was supposed to make our whole banking system much safer. Well, uh, the banks submitted their first drafts of living wills, and the regulators came back this week and said, no dice. You have told 11 major institutions that they had made far too many upbeat assumptions about various and sundry things like the way foreign governments would react to a possible insolvency, to how, you know, the value of certain trades, etc., and said, you need to redo this, or we can start talking about remedies like making you actually sell off parts of your operations or you know forcing you to restructure yourself legally in various ways and this is this is a big deal it means that in the eyes of the uh, regulators it's not necessarily that they're too big to fail necessarily i mean yes to some degree but they are too big to take apart let's put it that way and so it's it's a big development it was kind of a surprise and it's uh and it's heartening, I think. Yeah. It, it shows that the regulators have some backbone. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, what what's the surprise here? The surprise is that the FDIC actually complained. Well, it's because... not just the FDIC. You kind of expect the FDIC to complain about this, but it's also the Fed. Yeah. And to be, this, this is a little bit confusing because they're both kind of the government. But the FDIC is a semi-autonomous government institution which ensures banks and is funded by banks and is very, very worried 
about bank failures because that's it's 100% of its job is to worry about bank failures. And it costs uh, them money. The Fed, you know, is is looking at this from what's known as a macro prudential standpoint, which is another wonderful piece of jargon, which no one really knows what, what it means. And it is heartening that the Fed turned around and to these 11 banks and said, not good enough. Well, here's the thing. They're asking them to do something that is impossible. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, these banks are too big to manage. So if they're too, and they're too complex to even understand as one person, you know, so the idea that they're going to turn around and explain how to, you know, carefully dismantle something that's like monstrous. Plus, of course, they're going to give like the rosiest possible picture on how easy that's going to be. Um, so you're kind of asking for a PR report from them. And that's what you're going to get. Do you think I, there's I, an element of this, though, that's sort of the confidence game to some degree? I mean, if if you take for granted that they actually are too big to resolve. Right. But do you think that just the act of regulators coming in and saying, no, you have to do better and showing some sort of backbone when they look at the plan is going to create some sort of market confidence that maybe it's possible they could actually resolve no, these. I no, think, you I, don't think I, so? I, no, I mean, that, that kind of level of kabuki doesn't work. The okay. problem here, and, and this, was, this was hotly debated while Dodd-Frank was being debated in, in Congress, this aspect of Dodd-Frank, the Resolution Authority, the ability of the government to wind down a, a bank in trouble, was debated by a lot of people who said, that's not possible. These banks are too big. You can't do that. To, and then the way that it got through Dodd, Dodd-Frank was to say, well, we're going to make it possible by asking the banks to come up with these living wills. And there was this big debate. Like On the one hand, if you ask the banks to come up with living wills, can't you just follow the directions on the living will and do what it says? And on the other hand, people saying, no, it's not going to work. And I think that what Kathy says is right, that what we're realizing now, what the regulators are realizing now, is that it doesn't work. These banks are too big. The only way to make them small enough to fail or not connected enough to fail is to break them up, which isn't going to happen. And what's more... None of this really matters because the important bank failures are the bank failures which happen in the context of what you're talking about, a broader credit crunch, a broader financial crisis. And if you have one bank failing in that kind of context, then all of the other banks are going to be at risk as well. And then you have a genuinely systemic crisis, and there's no way that the government can intervene and resolve every single bank at once. And th- that actually brings us to another interesting piece of news recently about the too-big-to-fail front, which was this uh, Government Accountability Office study. Essentially, it was looking at the too-big-to-fail uh, kind of funding advantage, the idea that banks have to pay less on their debt because investors think that they are too big to fail and they're going to get paid back no matter what. And essentially, uh, it initially got reported was that the GAO said this funding advantage is gone. Uh, you know, we, we've run these regressions, we've run this analysis, and they don't really seem to be getting any kind of premium. But uh, if you looked a little more carefully, and Matt Levine at uh, Bloomberg talked about this, what it really said is we ran 42 different models. And in some of them, the too big to fail advantage was gone. And in some of them, it was still around. And the ones where it seemed like it was still around was where we assumed that essentially there was a massive systemic crisis and everyone's credit risk was going up. So essentially, the the idea is that too big to fail still sort of exists, 
in the instances where we have to worry about it actually existing. So, I mean, it, it's very, very similar as a topic because in Dodd-Frank, there was something, and I don't exactly know what the rule was, but it basically came down to we shouldn't bail out the banks anymore. So that, But, I mean, that's more of like a pipe dream more than a rule, right? And so the question here that the GAO was trying to investigate was to what extent does the market think that the banks are too big to fail? Yeah. And are they giving them some kind of advantage through lending? And I think it's kind of a classic example of sort of measuring slightly the wrong thing. You know, you you want to answer a question A and you answer question B instead. Because the truth is, like, we we read Tim Geithner's book. We know that there's plenty of people who would bail out the banks again, who claim that they did the good, a good job and they're going to do it again. So- uh, the GAO, I mean, to be, to be fair, the GAO didn't say that the government is not going to bail out right. the no. banks. Everyone knows that if push comes to shove, the government would bail out Bank of America. They can't afford to let it just go bust. The question is, does this give Bank of America an unfair advantage in the market? And the answer is, well, actually, no, not really, not right now, because even though the lenders to Bank of America know that they're going to get paid back in extremists. At the same time, Bank of America is suffering under a huge regulatory burden. It has these things called SIFI surcharges. Basically, these it has to have more capital. The regulators are forcing it to, to have more equity and that kind of stuff. And as a result, its total funding, total blended funding cost, including the cost of equity and that kind of stuff, is probably higher than smaller banks rather than lower than smaller banks. But the lenders still think that it's too big to fail. Exactly. It's not a political answer. Yeah. You know, the political answer is, yes, they're too big to fail. But the sort of the, the lending risk answer is they're actually not getting that much of an advantage. There's just I think there's one little bit of political context that I just want to add to why they were actually asking this specific question, whether or not they get a funding advantage, um, is that a lot of liberals in Congress and you know, commentators bring this as, up as a talking point. A, that this is proof that too big to fail really exists, that, look, even the market really thinks this. You know, they're giving them this funding advantage. That was something you would often hear. But then on top of that, they would sometimes try to parlay that into, you know, some sort of argument for a tax or somehow the, these banks owed the government back some sort of – some of the, what the profits they are making off of this advantage. That, that was something that was brought up occasionally. And that was sort of some of the thinking uh, that may have been fueling um, – the senators that actually asked for this report. But anyway, it seems but like... But I mean, it, I, I just want to make the point that if it's a sum of effects, yeah. they still might be getting some of a too-big-to-fail effect yeah. that maybe they should owe us. And then it's being offset by some other effect. Yeah. I mean, I'm just pointing out, when you look at a sum of things, you don't know what the constituent parts look like. That's true. We're going to move on to Robert Rauschenberg, the late great artist, because I feel like we've had enough heavy stuff and we're going to talk about art which is light and fluffy and not much nothing really light and fluffy about Rauschenberg's work (laughs) (laughs) and pasted to a canvas canvas. (laughs) and that that whole story about how the Ileana Sonab and the great art dealer owned the bald eagle piece which is illegal in the United States and the IRS wanted to charge tax on it, even though it has no value because you're not allowed to sell it because it has an endangered species on it. <laughs> and the IRS is saying, well, maybe there's a secretive Chinese billionaire who would pay $100 million for it in secret and then not tell you. Is, and that, so we're wait, gonna... is that so unrealistic, though? Like... Yes, that, that is highly unrealistic. <laughs> in any case, we're not going to talk about bald eagles. We are going to talk about the Rauschenberg Foundation and the Rauschenberg Trust, because this is actually a fascinating story. When Rauschenberg died, he set up a foundation. You may have come across the Rauschenberg Foundation. It shows a lot of 
good art and that you know works with good causes and it's a charitable foundation and it's run by his son Christopher Rauschenberg. However, he did not actually give the bulk of his estate to the Rauschenberg Foundation. Rauschenberg gave the bulk of his, his, of his estate to the Rauschenberg Trust. And then the Rauschenberg Trust was being run for the benefit of, mostly, the Rauschenberg Foundation. The Rauschenberg Trust, meanwhile, was not run by Christopher Rauschenberg. In fact, it was run by Daryl Portoff and a couple of his friends, Portoff being Rauschenberg's, not husband because they couldn't get married back then, but like longtime companion. And the Rauschenberg Trust, did a reasonably good job of managing the trust, the estate. Except for that the three men running the trust, Daryl Portoff, Bennett Grutman, and Bill Goldston, if you need their names, started paying themselves very large amounts of money, like $8 million, to run this estate. And Christopher Rauschenberg, the guy running the foundation, said, this is ridiculous, why are you paying yourself this kind of money? And he basically took, as he could do legally, he basically took all of the assets out of the trust, out of the estate, brought them into the foundation and said, okay, you guys are fired. You're paying yourselves too much. So then the trustees sued the foundation for the fees that they said that they were owed, which were like 50-some million dollars. And then there was this whole court case where everyone said, how dare you ask for $50 million for work for just, you know, a few years running a trust. So that's, that is a case which was recently decided by a judge in Florida, and I think everyone hopes that it's not going to get appealed, but the judge kind of split it down the middle and said, okay, you can have $24 million between the three of you minus the $8 million you've already paid yourselves. So, I mean, I think you underplayed how well they did. I mean, <laughs> I mean, and, and I'm not, you know, obsessed with money at all. In fact, that's going to be my point. But you know, they didn't just do pretty well managing this, right? I mean, what was their, like, return? It was something like a 1,000% or... It, it, it's like it, now $2 billion. Wait, wait, wait. No, I mean, okay, so the value of the estate is highly contentious. Oh. Okay, is that... The, the is trustees claim that they increased the value of the estate from $600 million to $2.2 billion. Yeah, that's a lot. The foundation says that the estate went from... Five hundred and fifty million to five hundred and fifty million. Oh. Is so, that because you're value, uh, trying well, to value art? That is kind of a what, big deal. Wait, what, yeah. These things are not easy to value. What is the controversy? Is it because you're trying to essentially value paintings? Yeah. Or okay, and so it's you can't actually value them until they're at auction, and so it's. Well, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways to try and put a value on a painting, but none of them are very precise. Yeah, that that's well, that's certainly interesting. I mean, the, my first reaction to reading this, besides that, wow, they made they made almost like quadruple the amount of money, which now I. I'm doubting yeah. is isn't wasn't there a contract associated with this? Like it doesn't it doesn't seem possible that all this money was sitting there with no well, real not contract. Money, it's paintings. Well, okay, the, but the trust the trust must have been set up with rules about how you can pay yourself. Well, well, yes, it was, but the trustees had quite a lot of discretion under those rules as to how much to pay themselves, and they were paying themselves a lot, but they weren't paying themselves fifty million dollars. They only asked for the fifty million dollars after they were fired. Um, I see. And the, so another another interesting and important aspect of it, and I might be wrong about this too, tell me, is that the foundation actually gives money to starving artists. The foundation is a charitable foundation which tries to do charitable things. I wouldn't say necessarily starving artists, but that may be part of its mandate. So if you look at it that way, you're like any 
a piddling one million dollars taken from these these guys, these trustees, and given to the foundation is like is supporting you know five hundred artists, and it should happen. Yeah, you can look at it that way if you want, and that's certainly the way that Christopher Rauschenberg is trying to portray it. He's like, if you know, all any money we spend on trustees is money we can't spend on starving artists or whoever. You know, in reality, the Rauschenberg Foundation is like all other foundations that exists mainly to perpetuate the Rauschenberg Foundation that gives away no more than 5% of its assets every year. And, you know, every dollar not paid to the trustees is a dollar not sitting earning interest. Although, again, this isn't really money we're talking about. It's mostly paintings. So artist foundations are complicated things. And the main point I wanted to make about this story is that Rauschenberg himself left a body of work. You know, he could divvy it up as he wanted to. And these people that he put in charge of the trust were people he really loved and trusted. And he had every right to give them anything he wanted to give them. He could give them the entire estate if he wanted, just bequeath it to them. He did not put his son in charge of the trust. He put his son in charge of the foundation. And that distinction was disastrous. You can't sort of put a trust to benefit the foundation, but then have them run by different people and you have your you know, lover on one and your son on the other and you know they're going to wind up fighting. So that wasn't very smart of him. But in general, I have sympathy with the trustees here, not because I think they deserve their $24 million particularly and not because I think they did a particularly great job running the trust. I think mostly that was just the art market going up and everyone looked smart in, in those particular years. But just because I don't come at these questions with the idea that all charities are necessarily the highest and best form of spending money and using money. If you want to give your money to a charity, if you want to spend your money in a charity, that's fine. But let's not just always assume that the way that charities spend money or the way that Christopher Rauschenberg spends money is going to be better than the way that, you know, Daryl Portoff spends money. I feel like I'm getting subtweeted on our, at the moment, our conversation about the potato salad guy from a few weeks ago. <laughs> but I, I, I see your point. I do think there's another issue that this case kind of raises that interesting. And maybe it's, again, from the projects having read through too many court cases in my life. But um, but the the broader issue of asking people to essentially decide how great their performance is and how much they should be paid for their own performance. And you see this, like, you know, for managing a trust, for going over a bankruptcy and what fees you should charge. These sorts of issues come up again and again for representing, uh, sometimes for representing a client in an antitrust case, for instance, and then adding up your fees. It happens with law firms constantly. And it's just always interesting to me the degree to which, you know, the, we're all all asked to do like self-evaluations at the office and how essentially... Really? You, Slate does that? You know, I'm new enough here that I don't know if I... I think at some point I might have to do one. Yeah. A lot of people do, though. Yeah, I had, <laughs> one, I had one at the Atlantic. I use charts. But, you know, we my all My awesomeness chart. Yeah, right. Cool. My, it goes like this. <laughs> uh, right, right now, by the way, I'm doing a straight, almost vertical line up um, <laughs> just for the listeners at home with my little finger. Um, but <laughs> we're all asked to do self-evaluations, but there are these sort of like high-stakes versions of self-evaluations where you're asked, how great am I? How great am I really? How many millions am I worth? And then occasionally you're asked to present that before a judge. And, and frequently judges are actually, it's interesting how lenient they are towards, in all sorts of instances, the sorts of paydays people give themselves. And I'm not saying they got it wrong here. It's just, it's sort of an ongoing issue of... of uh, and these, these, are big, these are big questions. I mean, the, the, the instance which springs to mind is Conrad Black, yeah. um, who actually went to jail for paying himself too much out of his out of his company and then appealed and basically won and was sort of vindicated after coming out of jail 
But no one seems to like him anymore anyway. <laughs> that was the real penalty. <laughs> um, we are going to move on to the numbers round. Uh, Jordan, what's your nine? My nine is the number of years that Puerto Rico has been losing population. We discussed the island's problems a few episodes ago. And it's uh, the, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York has been kind of monitoring the situation there and came out with a report just about how it's dwindling. People are – it's partly just natural childbirth slowing, but it's also people just leaving the island. Um, and that's almost always one of the worst signs you can have economically is when people just start fleeing. So right now uh, they're trying to attract billionaires, as we discussed last time, by making themselves into a pseudo-tax haven. At the same time, uh, the population base is uh, shrinking. And it's it's fairly infrequent for a state or a territory to actually lose population for consecutive years, much less nine years. I'm off the top of my head, and I, I apologize if I might be getting slightly wrong. I believe that was the second longest consecutive streak that the uh, Fed listed. The longest first state was like 11 years of, of consecutive population lost. Wow. So, yeah, it's not good. I wouldn't call it a pseudo-tax shelter, by the way. Um, <laughs> so my number is one, and I'm, I, but I'm not telling you what my unit is. My unit is stick. One stick. I, yeah, one stick. This is my favorite finance jargon slang, actually. As in a um, million dollars. Yes, a million dollars. One of my first lunches when working in finance was with a couple lawyers and structured products who were talking about their bonuses. And one of them said, how much do you expect to make? And the other one said, five or six sticks. <laughs> and I was like, what? What is that? <laughs> and it was, it was a way of talking about millions of dollars. And I, it somehow did all these things we were talking about combined you know it made it it's just like also known as a yard by the way in, oh, yeah. in fx if you if a, a yard of dollars is a million dollars it's just it's just like anyone who doesn't work in our industry might think about thousands of dollars in units but we're smarter than that we talk about sticks i remember talking to my boss once about like how much someone was getting paid and he's like oh yeah i think he's getting paid a buck 20 yeah. and that was like when you start dealing with <laughs> Big numbers, you make them sound smaller. So a hundred, you, you would never say, "I think he's getting paid one hundred and twenty thousand dollars." No, I think it's being paid a buck twenty. Right. Yep. That kind of thing. My number is one hundred million, which is the number of dollars. This is one of my favorite stories of the week that Bernie Eccleston paid a court in Germany in Munich to settle bribery charges against him. The charge was that he'd paid someone forty-four million dollars to you know, avoid a lawsuit. So then they discovered this and they took him to court on bribery charges saying, did you just pay off someone to avoid this lawsuit? And he said, um, can I not answer that question but just pay you $100 million instead? And they said, okay. And, you know, this is like the perfect evolution because you first you have like corporations are people and then you're like corporations can get in trouble and you're like, actually, corporations don't get in trouble. They just pay fines. Therefore, people just pay fines instead of getting into trouble. Like this is what's happened. <laughs> and, and yes, and I, I think honestly, that's exactly what we're seeing. And the difference between Bernie Eccleston and Formula One is a difference without a distinction. He is basically a corporation. Yes, this is all very ancient. This this was sort of a uh, yeah. a pre Hammurabi's code way. It's of like deal. a biblical yeah, thing. Th yeah, it was that you know if you accidentally killed somebody else's like daughter or something, there was some sort of incident like two goats just, and a cow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there was some sort of financial reparations you could make. So I mean, really, we're just getting back to our roots. This case was 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 so amazing in so many ways that Bernie was commuting to Munich on his private jet under terms set by the court. 
And at one point when this deal was done, the judge went up to the lawyer and said, can he come up with $100 million in the next 48 hours? And the lawyer goes, <laughs> yes, I think he can do that. <laughs> in any case, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you all very much for listening to Slate Money. If you liked the show, subscribe. You can find us by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And if you'd be so kind as to leave us a review while you're there, it will help spread the word. We might even start reading some reviews next week, along with the mailbag, which we didn't have time to get to this week. But we do love your letters, and we will read more of them next week. Um, the address is slatemoney at slate.com. We genuinely really do love hearing from you. And as I say, letters next week on the show. The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.